0: Hello, everybody. It's Mike. Hope you're doing well. What you're about to hear is part two of the interview I had with Richard Harrison this month. Richard, of course, was Gordon's former road manager. So he's going to be talking a little bit more about his experiences with Gordon Lightfoot on the road. And at the end of the episode, you'll be hearing a preview of the next episode I'll be doing. All right. Enjoy.
1: First guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. (laughs)
0: Um, What guitars did Gordon use while he was on the road most frequently?
1: When I first met him, and even before, because it's been on album covers, Even before I got there, he was using a six-string was a Martin D-28. That's the one made out of Brazilian rosewood. But he has always, his 12-string of choice has always been a Gibson B-45. The blonde one that's on one cover, that was one of the guitars that got stolen. And let's put it this way. There are always people dropping off guitars wanting to sell them the door, right? So this B-45 came in, and Almer, his office manager, called me up and says, come on over, pick this up, play it for a while, tell me what you think of it. I went back and I said, it's a great axe. And Gordon has used that axe. He's probably still got the original. But of course, now he uses 2B45, so he gets out of a certain tuning problem toward the end of the show when he starts doing early morning rain of the trilogy, things like that. As far as the sixth string goes, he graduated to a D45. That's the other one that was stolen. And I was upset that he bought it because I wanted it (laughs) and then he used and Terry followed suit handmade guitars made by a chap named McGlinsey and he started using those they were kind of a junior dreadnought but they had all the abalone and the mother of pearl and all the other good stuff but then he went back to Martin and he went back to D18s which are interesting because there's a difference between a D18 and a D28 the D18 barks because it's made out of mahogany It has a real attack to it. That's why most bluegrass flat pickers use a D18. The D28 is more like a fine wine. He picked up a D18 at a music store in Nashville, and that's what he's been using.
0: Interesting analogy. I've never played a Gibson. I do have a Martin Shenandoah. And for a while, I had a Fender 12-string. But with acoustic guitars, I've always had Champagne Tastes and a beer budget. So I haven't, you know, always been able to get my hands on, you know, the instruments I really wanted, but I was interested. Staying with guitars for just a second, were you also responsible for the guitar tech for Red and Terry, or were you just responsible for getting the instruments there, and then the guys took care of their own tech?
1: Well, I'll bring in Gord for a second. When he needed the guitar drone he usually had me do it. As far as Red and Terry go, in a limited sense, for instance, one time. Red had this electric, and he'd read a music article that if the two pickups have exactly the same impedance, meaning the number of raps around, when you play them out of phase, you get this unique sort of honky sound out of them. It's almost unique. My Telecaster, when I was playing with the Good Brothers, I had phase reverse switch on it, too. For, like, the Dobro solo in Alberta Bound, I played on the Telecaster with the pickups reversed and it almost sounded like a dobro but the key is you have to have the exact same impedance so red had me doctor that up for him i also made from scratch a distortion unit and red loved it so i gave it to him as far as terry goes the main thing with terry was when they were recording the the song protocol terry used a phase shifter and I'd gotten both Peewee and Terry used MXR phase shifters, which which I turned them on to because I'd done a show with Ann Murray and his, his guys were using those things. And they both loved them. But what I did was I took the case off the MXR phase shifter of Terry and I basically, by adding more voltage, overclocked it. And it's only on protocol. So when you hear Terry playing those licks and they're just going... That's because I was overclocking his distortion, uh, sorry, his phase shifter. Other than that, yeah, that was really, really all I did there. So you had a role though. That's, That's great.
0: When you and he were choosing venues, and maybe this is something that somebody else was responsible with. What was the process for choosing venues like? Was that based on, well, there are this many people, or this is where the record sales have been, or this is where the radio stations are? This is something that my son wanted to know. How did Gord and or you go about choosing where the band was going to play?
1: Well, again, earlier years, later years. In the earlier years, we basically dealt through his production company, Early Morning Productions, which he still does, he would get offers coming in. I'd boot. I can get this university uh, theater uh, or this, that, or, you know, whatever. And it was presented to Al Mayer when he was the office manager. And then later, Gord's older sister, Beverly, uh, when she took over. And they would get together with Gord at, at one point and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And he'd give it a yes or no. In the later years, after sundown again, that's the key phrase, bigger promoters started to come around and they ended up doing a lot of the booking because we trusted them. And they were, again, Tom Robin and uh, Jerry Long. And when they formed a partnership, we couldn't help but We called them Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry, sure. They would organize the whole pack. Jerry Long would do what we used to call the Northwest Tour. Uh, that's where he does all the... Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, Calgary, that sort of thing. So they would organize it all. You would just, Gordon would okay the whole package. And we also worked with a company called International Creative Management, ICM. Actually, they were responsible for booking Gordon when this opportunity happened to start playing the casinos. And they would also supply the opening act. Because, again, you were in a a two-show-a-night situation. It was brutal because you had a dinner show. That's okay. You know, it's 8 o'clock. People are eating dinner and everything. But then there was a midnight cocktail show. And so you're not out of that dressing room until about 2.30 in the morning. And then you just had no fun after, no drinks after. Just hit the sheets, as Gordon would say.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine. And if you're doing that night in and night out, If some of these guys hadn't been in the early 20s, it had killed them. Just that stress that goes along with that. When Gordon was not on the road, did you live in or around Toronto or did you go back to California or what was your living situation when he wasn't touring?
1: Oh, no, no. I I was definitely Ontario based. I moved part and parcel right up there. I started out about a year in Toronto and I got a little sick and tired of the fire engines going by at three in the morning, as you might imagine. Yeah, And so I moved to Aurora, and ironically, I moved within a, a block of red. And then Terry moved up there, and of course, my whole band is deserted. <laughs> no, we were actually the same driving time to the airport as Midtown Toronto, about 40 minutes. And no stoplights, no stop signs. You just barrel down 401, and there you were.
0: Convenient. Nice. Did you ever get to go with Gordon on any of his canoe trips?
1: No, but I'll say one thing. He would go on them. And when he came back from them, he looked tough. He looked fit. Any uh, excess baggage around the midriff, gone. He went on one. He swore he'd never do it again. But then he did it for years, almost annually.
0: I know it was a great way to clear his head and then realizing that he, he has to go back to the real world and start writing songs again.
1: He wrote them on the trips, too. For instance, one of his most beautiful songs, Shadows, right, was mm-hmm. written on a canoe trip. And paddling a canoe downstream is really nice. But then you have this little interruption called a portage, where you got to pick the canoe up and carry it a couple of miles before you can get onto the next body of water.
0: Yeah, and I've carried canoes over level ground. That's enough of a challenge. And especially if you're doing it by yourself. I can't even imagine you know, trying to do that over hill and dale. Even if he wasn't deliberately writing, I mean, he was just trying to get away from it all. He was enormously fortunate that he was able to do that. I can't even imagine how beautiful, how spiritually refreshing that must have been for him, especially coming off of the exhaustion that city after city after city where maybe they start to run together. One of the elephants in the room with Gordon in this time was his relationship with Kathy Smith. And again, I don't want to get into dishing the dirt, but I'm wondering if you have any recollections or did you have any interactions with her while you were working with Gordon?
1: Yes, I did. She was kind of like part of the family. Now, yes, their relationship was tempestuous. There are no secrets there. But I always found her very sweet. She was a good listener. She had a good sense of humor. And I really liked her, actually. I, it's a shame that she went overboard, went off the deep end. But, you know, I had no control over that, neither did anybody else. So once she had left Gord finally, you know, and we all know, of course, she ended up with John Belushi at Hotel Marmot and with the Stones, of course, for a while. But after she left Gord, or after she left my orbit, I really never heard anything anything, except what was on the news. She just plain disappeared. She had a really good side. She really did.
0: Yeah, I don't doubt it. And when we get into heavy substances, then the bad side of us does tend to come out. We'll be right back to our conversation with Richard Harrison about his experiences and his book, Once Upon a Red Eye. But first, let's do a little business. Attention listeners, the oldest record store in Toronto wants to buy your record collection. Cops Records is run by and for collectors. They know just how much heart goes into compiling your favorite music. Whether the vinyl belongs to you, a loved one, or a friend, they'll bring their 40 years of experience and sensitivity to every transaction. If you're thinking of selling a collection, visit COPS Records, that's cops with a K, records C-A, or call them at 647-347-0095. You can also visit COPS at one of their three locations in the Toronto area. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good- Going around, obviously there was exhaustion from you know going from place to place. Do you remember how you felt in terms of either homesickness or loneliness while you were touring, or was it just kind of nose to the grindstone and get on with business? And then, and that I'm asking you to be a little bit personally reflective here.
1: As far as the exhaustion goes, yeah. When Gordon started playing multiple venues, you know it used to be you fly out Friday morning. He played Friday night, uh, you fly out Saturday morning, he play Saturday night, fly out Sunday morning, play Sunday night, and then he flew home. And that was the whole thing, again, until sundown. Then he had to expand. As far as exhaustion, you just deal with it. You've got your job to do. You put your blinders on and you just do it. You have to stand up and do the work. Loneliness? No. <laughs> I was around people I loved. There was a lot of joking around. And so it was very entertaining homesick, no loneliness. No, either you were too busy or, or getting into stuff, you know, just having a good time.
0: It's hard to be homesick and lonely if you're having a lot of fun. And it sounds like that for at least a lot of your time with him, that was the situation. You talked a little bit about pranks that were played while Gordon was touring. Is there one in particular or a couple in particular that you want to talk about that were just the best ribs you'd ever seen?
1: Well, let's put it this way. There were lots. There were lots and lots and lots. We had a great time with them. The the, the ones that come to mind, and again, this is just Cole's notes. You get the full treatment in the book and how these pranks were conceived and what was necessary to execute them and things like that. Pee-wee and the belligerent bee had to be great. Again, I don't think we have enough time to go into it, but the whole idea was Charlie and I found this stuffed bee about the size of a football kid's toy. You you jingle it, and this little sound comes out. And I flew it from one of the electrical pipes. Gord had this routine where you don't want dead air, and he did have to do When he dropped into that second tuning about two-thirds of the way through the second half, that's dead time. And you're sitting there playing with your strings and the audience going on, how long is this going to take? As David Crosby once said before taping the show, look, we play in or out of tune for the same money, your call. Mm -hmm. But Gord would use this time. He came up with this story about belligerent bees being from Guatemala. And Pee Wee would engage his distortion unit and he could make his pedal steel sound like a swarm of bees. And then I added a lighting thing to it where the bee is dangling over Pee-wee's shoulder, and there's a bright yellow spotlight on it that flickers <laughs> like a bee. Uh, there was the famous pie in the face, came from a Johnny Carson routine, where this irritating woman, you might remember the commercial, comes up to a guy and goes, ring around the collar, ring around the collar, yeah this horrible, nasty, squeaky voice. Well, Barry and I happened to see Carson do that. And when the woman came up to him and said, ring around the collar, everything, he went pie in the face and smacked her with a a cream pie. And I said, Barry, are you thinking what I'm thinking? So we came up with this elaborate thing where I have to get mad at Barry and storm out of the room. And the only reason I'm storming out of the room is to get my shirt off. Mm -hmm. And then I come storming back in, accusing him of all kinds of things. And I said, how would you feel if I came up to you and went ring around the collar and he went pie in the face. And he really nailed me. He thought he broke my nose. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was the uh, incident of the squirting microphone. And in Vegas with Harry Anderson, you might remember him, the late Harry Anderson, Night Court, the Mm -hmm. original Night Court. Yeah, he was gassed to be with. He's just great. Completely warped sense of humor, which we all love. And there was a thing where he engaged Barry. He always engaged the drummer of the headliner because in his final trick, he goes, a drum roll, please. And so Barry would go. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do something a little different on the last (laughs) show Gordon was there, And Harry came up to us after and he says, that was the best one ever.
0: (laughs) Wow. And that's high praise from a guy like Harry Anderson, because he certainly had a, a lot of comic chops. So, we have time for, I think, two more questions. Did Gordon ever have to deal with hecklers, or were there people you you mentioned dead time as you're tuning, you know, and I've been in that position where I'm trying to tune, you know, I can kind of hear people silently saying, Well, did Gordon ever get any hecklers? And if so, how did he
1: deal with them? There was only one that I can recall, and that was at the Dominion Theater at the tail end of the uh, British tour in actually European tour in, in 1981. Let's just put it bluntly because he'd be the first to admit it. There was some drinking involved. And unfortunately he was talking a lot and the heckler just says, come on, we can't you know we played areas, sing, you know, he goes on like that. Unfortunately at that point, Gord chose to engage. And so I'm sitting there at the lighting panel, Charlie's sitting at the soundboard, and we're going, uh. Gordon, stop it stop it but that's the only incident i can recall you know yeah. if you go to a show say at massey hall there are four generations in the audience from grandmothers to babes in arms.
0: he is also very very composed as a performer but again if you've had something to drink and you're angry about something then the instinct is to engage and that sounds like what gordon did okay Quick fire memories of the following cities. And I'm talking about like five seconds, instant impressions gotcha. of these. Gotcha. Vancouver.
1: The Bayshore in Marine Bar. That's where, after a show, I got to meet Jack Nicholson's Art car Garfunkel. Okay. Toronto. Massey Hall. Winnipeg. From my hotel window, watching hats fly on, down at the intersection of the Portage and Main. Very, very windy down there. You see people chasing their hats. Montreal. The Place des Arts. That was one of the first venues I did with Gordon. There's a picture of it in my book. I'm sitting on one of the stage risers. I still have my bird's haircut. Calgary. Calgary and Edmonton. I'll put those two together. The Jubilee Auditorium. For whatever reason, those two buildings in distant cities were identical. Even the paint colors. When you were in that, you didn't know whether you were in Calgary or Edmonton. You just did not know. And it was only when you got out in the parking lot and you had to drive back to the hotel, you have to say, now I better know which one is which because there are different ways to get to the hotel. New York. Avery Fisher Hall, Lincoln Center. Gord's always been hot in New York. Lincoln Center is beautiful. It also happens to be the first time I met Mimi Farina. I'd known her sister Joan for years, but even though I was living in pretty much the same town, I'd never met Mimi. She had a guitar player named Debbie Green who played for Eric Anderson, and she was actually one who taught both Joan and Mimi finger-picking um, Wow! So I remember her very well. She was also, by the way, because she drove me to the hotel, she's also a New York cabbie wannabe. <laughs> cabbie was. <laughs> Los Angeles. Oh, the Universal Amphitheater, one of my favorites and Gord's favorites venues. Bob Hope complained, oh, it's too much noise there, so they had to enclose it, which destroyed the entire ambiance of the place. Now it's torn down altogether, and there's something about Harry Potter or something. Also, the Troubadour. He used to play a week at the Troubadour, and we'd stay just up the street at the Hyatt House. It was in the bar section of the Troubadour. That's where I met Linda Ronstadt. I invited her up to the the room where Gord was having a small gathering, so she and I went up there. Chicago. Deep Dish Pizza. And, of course, PBS Soundstage. Denver. Well, that's, of course where the the pie-in-the-face place uh, took place just up the road. But the chapter I have on the whole fiasco when they had to move board show from Red Rocks to this indoor building called the Coliseum, that's where the sound went dead. And not only that, we couldn't have a sound check because they opened the door, and I had a brand-new board. We used to carry our own board on the road, 32-channel Yamaha. And I would have settings. And so when you get to the next venue, the settings are still there. You just tweak them to accommodate idiosyncrasies of the particular building. But this one was all zeroed out, and I didn't get a chance. So I just took a stab at the settings. It took me about a quarter of the way through the first set before I had it where I liked it. The other thing is somebody kicked out a power chord, and when Leona Boyd started to play, the sound completely dead. There was nothing. So we're all on headsets, like, did you check this? Did you check that? And in the meantime, poor Leona didn't know what to do, because she's all alone with about 10,000 people there. And and, uh, (laughs) I just yelled from the soundboard, keep playing, honey, we're working on it. And all all of a sudden, the sound, it came to life, and boom, we were back in business. So yeah, that was weird. Yeah, that's an unforgettable one. Seattle. The Opera House, beautiful facility. and. I did get a chance to have dinner up on the Space Needle. Portland. We went to an after-concert party, Gordon and I alone. And the two memorable things was we had a good time. The other one was we had to drive through all the paper mills. That atmosphere, it just stunk. Philadelphia. Oh, the venue. Philharmonic Hall with its conductor, Eugene Ormandy. And uh, I still have... A bunch of classical records with uh, him leading that orchestra, including, I think, the Saint-Saëns Organ Symphony. And then
0: to wrap up, home sweet home for me, San Francisco.
1: Again, the opera house, beautiful facility. And I lived in San Francisco for about nine months. I had to get out of LA. So I got to visit my old residence where I used to live on 8th Street.
0: Well, the name of the book is Once Upon a Red Eye. The author is Richard Harrison. And those of you that are listening, if you haven't gotten the book yet, get on Amazon and get it because it is a great read. And Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been so much fun and deep honor for me and an interview I'll never forget doing. So thank you so much. Oh, and thank
1: you too. You're a great interviewer.
0: And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode is going to feature Will Kruger from Maryville, Tennessee, and he and I will be discussing 16 Miles to Seven Lakes, from the Lightfoot album that came out in 1966. Until then, for Richard Harrison, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell We'll see you next time.